welcome back to another podcast. I'm your host, Max Shannon. Today, I'm very grateful and excited to be joined with joined by Roxana Mohamedian Molina, Chief Strategy Officer of Blend Network. Prior to joining Blend Network, Roxana was a Vice President at Morgan Stanley, responsible for the design and implementation of fundamental-based and tactical trade ideas. And before that, she advised international commodity investors at Barclays. Roxana also founded the leading UK mo- mobile beauty tech platform, Zeba, which was dubbed the Uber of beauty by the Daily Mail and successfully exited after 18 months. And finally, Roxana holds a master's in financial state of economics, as well as currently being an employer advisory uh, board member for the University of Essex. Roxana, firstly, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, given- thank you so much for the invite, Max. Great to be here. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. Um, given your role with X University, um, what's the best thing graduates can do to get employed in this job market environment and what traits should they demonstrate? Uh, well, so uh, obviously, I, I think uh, everyone knows that it is a, a tough market for, for uh, students graduating at the moment. And, and this is something that we need to recognize. But the great news is that there certainly are things that students can do um, to, to land a job, uh, even in this, in, in this current market. And I would say uh, my top three tips for employment would be to first make yourself and your profile stand out. To second, uh, focus on building a great network that you can tap into. And the third is to be humble, to be willing to learn and to be ready to uh, grab any opportunities that, that comes your way. So if I can uh, just give a bit more details about uh, each of those points. Uh, the first one is to make yourself and your profile stand out. Uh, obviously, uh, it is a tough market and, and there are uh, thousands of applications for a, a, every single job opportunity. Um, so I think it's really important to make sure that your CV and your profile is just not uh, another one into that pile of CVs, but uh, you know to make sure that it stands out. And there are many different ways to do that from having things that are you know, unusual, whether you speak a, a, you know, a specific language or whether you have done a specific course that is relevant to that job. But also I'm a big fan of um, once you have applied to a job to actually reach out to the people that you have applied to and, and to make a direct um, contact with them because um, you know, uh, personal relationships are always very important. And when you, you, know, when you, when you know someone, when you like someone, obviously it's going to impact your your decision making and um, so saying you know sending an email saying hi you know I've just applied for this job um, this is me and, and just being nice to people I think is a, is a good idea so just make your profile stand out so when they review that CV they can they, they know you know or they say oh I've spoken to that person I know who that person is Obviously, it's going to be based on your merit at the end of the day, but uh, we all like to, you know, to work with people that we like. Uh, so, so yeah. Uh, the second one is to focus on building a great network that you can tap into. And for me, this has always been key in my uh, uh, in my career to basically to have to to to. To, to have a network to, um, you know, to not just uh, apply for a job uh, coldly, but, but to uh, have people at, at the companies that you want to work with, to be able to reach out to them to, uh, not only for jobs, but maybe it might be for just advice, you know, maybe you're applying for a job and you want uh, to ask the, their opinion about a specific role, about a specific team, about someone. So network, there's a saying, 
your network is your net worth. So um, networking is, is very important. Obviously, nowadays it's a bit more difficult because uh, we can't do it face to face. But I think it's still, uh, you know, uh, possible to do it in many, many other ways. And now we are going back to normal again. So, yeah, so um, uh, focus on, on the network. And the third one is, um, so the first two ones, I guess, are, you know, before you, you actually get a job. So to, in order to, to get a job. And the third one is once you, you've got an offer for a job or you start a job to really be humble and to be willing to learn and to, to take any opportunities. I've, I've known people who, you know, they, they were looking for a job for a long time. They got an offer and then, uh, they, you know, they were kind of a little bit arrogant. Uh, they wanted to start, you know, from the top. They were not willing to take maybe a, a lower position, a lower salary. So, so that doesn't really work. I mean, we all had to start from the bottom and work our way hard. So, and this is, this is something that employers um, really appreciate. Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, well, I'll, I'll definitely keep that in mind. Um, but on to Blend Network. Um, can you just quickly explain what it is, why it was set up, and what strategy is used, but also its competitive advantage? Yes, sure. Blend Network, essentially, uh, put in a simple way, is a property lending club. So it's, it's, a, it's an online platform blendnetwork.com where investors uh, who have a bit of money to invest, they can invest in property projects. And those projects are essentially money that is lent to property developers who want to build houses. So it's a kind of a lending club where we connect investors, lenders with borrowers. Um, that's just a, in a very simple way explained. Uh, so investors can invest any amount they want from 1,000 pounds. They get eight to 12% return. Uh, they by investing in property secured loans. So the, the loans are secured on first charge against property. And the borrowers, they can borrow money uh, up to 5 million for property projects. Okay, interesting. On from that, I noticed that some loans uh, have a 10% interest rate. Uh, you mentioned that there's a range between 8 and 12. But why would a borrower borrow from Blend Network when you can get a mortgage in the, you know, the low single digits? Yes, that's a good question. So firstly, um, the loans are not mortgages. These are development finance loans. So it's for someone who wants to build a house. So uh, technically is development finance. So development finance is a lot more expensive than uh, mortgages. Mortgages you can get by, you know, two, uh, even less than 2%, but development finance uh, tends to be around eight to, eight to 10%. And it's short-term lending. So it's someone who wants to borrow money, for three to 24 months to build a, a few houses. And then once the houses are built, then they can get a mortgage. Um, generally banks, you know, traditional banks, high street banks, they don't get involved in development finance. The, you, you can't just, you know, go to Barclays or to HSBC and, and get development finance on, on, unless you are a big developer. If you are Barrett's, you know, you, you can probably um, uh, borrow at those levels. But if you are a small developer who wants to build like two houses, five houses, then it's very difficult to get development finance. So um, that's where, you know, uh, alternative lenders like us and, and some challenger banks come in. And uh, it is a very fragmented market. So there's a lot of players in this market who are not regulated. Uh, and then obviously there, there's, we are regulated. And, and so that's really um, the background to the industry. Do you mind if you explain to the listeners what kind of due diligence is carried out on the loans, the property, the borrower, you know, for example, the ROI, the NOI, the cash on cash, cap rate, or maybe even the credit worthiness? 
Yes, um, obviously the due diligence is done both on the lenders and on the borrowers. So, um, you know, anyone who even registers to invest money, we need to do a due diligence, uh, things like KYC and checking the source of the money. Uh, but on the borrower side, uh, so mainly uh, what we want to really make sure is that the project makes sense, that this borrower has the uh, experience to deliver the project and that they can repay us. That's that's really the bottom line. Um, so uh, we do the due diligence, first of all, on his background. So we would lend to someone who has uh, enough experience, who has done similar projects in the past. So for example, if someone comes and says, I want to build five houses, but I've never done it before, uh, we wouldn't lend to them. So similar projects in the past. Then on the project itself, we need to make sure that the project makes sense. Uh, for example, if someone comes and says, I want to build you know, 20 flats in a small village, um, we probably say no because, uh, because we don't think there's enough demand for, for these houses. And so how is the borrower going to repay us? Um, is he going to sell those houses or to refinance onto a mortgage? Uh, if he's gonna sell, he's probably gonna struggle to sell if there's 20 flats in a small village. So we, we look at the exit uh, so the exit is how is the borrower planning to repay us in two years time? So that exit can be either to sell, either to refinance. If it is to sell, we look at the, uh, the region, the area. We want to make sure that there's enough liquidity in that area. It might be that the, you know, the properties are close to a, a, a unemployment hub, like a, a hospital, a university or, or a, um, you know, an airport or this type of thing. So there is enough demand, you know, there's a lot of demand. But if it's a region or a place where there's not a lot of liquidity, then we would be concerned. In terms of, uh, it could be that, the, you know, the borrower wants to actually keep the properties and he wants to refinance onto a mortgage. So in that case, what we need to check is how much we are lending to the, to the developer, because uh, uh, when the when the person wants to refinance onto a mortgage, the bank will lend a certain amount. Um, you know, it could be like you know, 80 to 90% of the value of the properties. So we need to make sure that we, what we are lending to him is less basically than what the bank is going to lend so that he can actually repay us. So the valuation is very important. Uh, borrowers, uh, generally, they tend to be very optimistic on the value of their properties, um, but we need to make sure that the values make sense. So we appoint independent RICS valuations uh, to make sure that the value is really what, uh, what, what, what we think it is. Uh, so all those type of um, you know, elements are part of the due diligence. Interesting. Thank you. As your business model is peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending, it seems as if you provide a platform infrastructure to facilitate uh, these lending transactions. Um, but it's important to dig deeper than that. So can you explain what kind of financial risk Blend Network takes on and, and how you manage it? Yes, so um, basically our main risk uh, is, is the risk of default of the borrower. Uh, that is our main risk. So apart from that, we, we don't, uh, lenders on our platform, they don't get any exposure to, to risk of blend going uh, bust um, because basically their money is sitting on a segregated account. So that risk, uh, it doesn't exist for the lenders. The, the risk that exists for lenders is the risk of the borrower not being able to repay the loan. Um, so the ways that we mitigate that risk are, are several uh, ways. First of all, we take a first legal charge on the property as a, as a security. And also uh, we take a personal warranty from the property developer 
and a debenture over the company. So that means that in the event that they cannot repay us back, uh, we have a, a legal charge to step in to sell that property and to recover the money. The second uh, way that we mitigate that risk is uh, the loan to gross development value. So at the moment, we, we lend uh, around 68% of the gross development value. So if a property in the back end is going to be worth a million, we would lend uh, no more than uh, 680,000 pounds on that. Um, that, uh, I mean, it, it might seem very low when you hear about the 95% mortgages, but mortgage is a completely different market. You know, banks are lending up to 95% of the value of the property, but we are at up maximum 68%. So that means that in the event of a default and we have to step in to liquidate the property, then, you know, even if we have to sell at a discount to get uh, the property liquidated quickly, we can still uh, pay our lenders their money back plus the interest. Uh, and then the third one is that we make sure that we are lending in very liquid markets and in very liquid properties. So for example, we would not mm, like to lend to someone who is building a five million pounds house in London. And the reason for that is because that is not very liquid. So if something happens and the borrower uh, cannot repay us, then if we are trying to sell a five million pound property in London, it's gonna be fairly difficult and it takes time, you know, because there are not many buyers. But uh, we lend to a more affordable type of property. So a 200,000 pounds flat or a 300,000 pounds houses. And the demand for that is very liquid. There's a lot of buyers. Um, uh, yeah, so that type of things. Interesting, okay. Um, but I also saw in 2018, your expected default rate was 1%, but your actual default rate was 4%. Um, what happened and why did it occur? Uh, yes, so I mean, this basically, uh, just uh, in terms of our track record, so far we have had zero loss. Uh, loss and default is, is, is different. The default is obviously when a loan defaults, but the loss is uh, whether you have actually lost uh, investor money, because as I said, uh, there could be a default, but then if you manage to recover the client's money plus the interest, then, then there's zero loss. So we have had zero loss, we've lost um, zero penny of, of investor money, but yes, so there was basically a default, uh, which uh, 4%, because we have a small uh, loan book, uh, it was actually just one loan that uh, went into default. And um, yes, it was uh, unfortunately due to COVID-19. Uh, I mean, you saw it in 2018, but this happened in 2020 because the loan was issued in 2018, but the default happened during COVID. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, many people suffered during COVID and, and the borrower behind this loan, he couldn't, um, he couldn't basically, uh, you know, uh, continue to, uh, to to pay the, the the interest on this loan, so we had to uh, to liquidate. But I think the important thing about this is is that uh, we actually managed to fully recover the investor money and pay them uh, their money back and their interest that had been accrued. So uh, it was actually a, a, a sad but a great outcome in a way as well. Well, um, Roxana, did the credit crunch in March 2020 affect Blend Network and? Was it, or was it more geared towards the secondary uh, market? In March and April 2020, initially we saw a uh, money uh, drawing up uh, from the investor side, and I think it was because everyone was really concerned and he was worried, and it was just a completely unknown situation. So yes, initially money uh, from the lenders dried up, but quickly, very quickly afterwards, from June last year. 
uh, it really started to, um, to, to increase massively. I mean, we've, last year, um, uh, overall, we doubled our lending. We increased the lending by 104% uh, during COVID. So I would say during uh, March and April 2020, it was a blip uh, where really, uh, yes, it, it dried up. But afterwards, uh, money has been coming in very, very quickly. And I think the reason is because um, uh, equity markets recovered very quickly. Uh, I mean, you know, they fell by by a third between um, February and March, but then afterwards they kept increasing, and people had been very concerned about the disconnection between the level of equity markets and the bloodbath going on in the high street. So people were concerned that uh, equity markets will see a correction, and people wanted to put their money somewhere else outside the equity market. And peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, lending offers a fixed return because you know the loans are, are have a fixed return, so there's no volatility, and then uh, they are secured against property. So a lot of people were looking to um, for a different source of yield, and this was just an attractive um, product. So uh, so yeah. But also considering the consequential effect of you know central banks monetary policy. Um, how has bottomed interest rates and negative real rates affected the blend network? Well, I mean, it's affected very clearly in the sense that over the past 10 years, uh, interest rates at, uh, on deposits at the banks has been close to zero. And now we are really starting to uh, hear about inflation and inflationary pressures and concerns about inflation. So people don't want to have their money at the bank uh, making zero return and, and uh, you know, with a fearing that inflation will uh, eat into their savings. So everyone is looking for a source of yield and people are looking where to put their money. And I think peer-to-peer -peer is good because uh, what we said before is first of all, is a fixed return. So you don't have the volatility, it's secured against property, but it's also, um, uh, you know, people can invest any amount they want. Uh, people can invest in our case from 1000 pounds. Uh, we, we have, you know, investors, very high net worth investors who are investing hundreds of thousands every per loan, but we are also having people who invest a thousand pounds on each loan. And I think this is great because in the past, uh, retail investors would not have had access to the same investment opportunities as institutional investors or family offices. But nowadays with this model, uh, everyone is co-investing in the same loan and under the same conditions. So if I'm an investor putting just 1,000 pounds, I would be very happy and very uh, kind of feel safe that I'm investing in a loan with a, with a guy who's put 100,000 pounds and who obviously is very sophisticated and has done a lot of due diligence. And I can just invest on the same loan in the same terms with them. Okay, um, and a follow-up question from uh, interest rates is, how damaging would a rise in uh, the yield curve be? Um, and would it affect your peer-to-peer -peer lending strategy? Um, but also on from that, the, your, you know, your due diligence upon lenders, borrowers and the property itself. Um, I mean, even if we see a, an increase in interest rate, I don't think we're going to go back, you know, to the levels of the 90s or 80s. Um, and uh, so probably it will affect, you know, the platforms that, uh, that have interest rates uh, sitting at around you know, four, five, six percent return, because if you are getting, you know, three percent at the bank and then you're getting four, five percent on a peer-to-peer, -peer, then yes, maybe, you know, you need to think about it because always the peer-to-peer has more risk. But if you are getting three percent at the bank versus 10 percent on a platform, then 
I think for me, the choice is, is, is clear. So I think platforms who are on the bottom end of the, of the returns in peer-to-peer -peer market will probably see uh, lenders shifting, uh, but platforms who are sitting more at the top end of the curve will, um, uh, will probably not be in that, that, that affected. Okay, going on to regulation, how does red, the red tape differ between traditional lending and alternative lending? Um, and do you think the government may still be hesitant to impose further regulation to not stifle lending and growth post-COVID? Uh, so <clears throat> alternative lending peer-to-peer -peer is very tightly regulated. And uh, this was not the case in the past, but in the past few years, um, uh, the FCA has really uh, you know, increased very heavily the regulation on platforms like us. And at the moment, there are really not many very platforms that are getting direct uh, approval by the FCA. We got our approval uh, in March, and, and uh, you know, our understanding was that we were one of the very few platforms who got um, uh, approved. Um, uh, I think, you know, generally, the last year the government saw that peer-to-peer -peer platforms and alternative lenders can be a very strong ally uh, to the government in deploying money to SMEs, to developers, and so on. Uh, the UK has a big housing crisis. And the government's target is to build 300,000 new houses every year. But at the moment, we are not building even half that number. And the main reason is lack of funding. So peer-to-peer -peer platforms like us, uh, we can deploy money. You know, we have money we can deploy. And the government sees that as an opportunity because uh, it can be an ally in helping tackle the, the housing crisis. So while I think the regulation will uh, will be there and will probably be tightened and that's a good thing but at the same time the government understands the the benefits and the and the potentials of having a more alternative lenders helping deploy capital but overall i think regulation is a great thing and you know the peer-to-peer -peer market in the uk is the second biggest in the world after the us and i think that one of the main reasons for that is the regulation because um, we have a lot of retail investors in this market, and retail investors need uh, trust and confidence that their money is safe when they invest in a platform. So the fact that this market is highly regulated, it brings more trust and confidence to the sector. Do you think there's cause for concern regarding regulation? Um, and how do you think, uh, or how will Blend Network need to adapt? Um, not a cause for concern. I think generally, you know, uh, it's been a great thing that the market is highly regulated and everything. Um, obviously, there, there is always a fine balance between, you know, regulation and letting uh, the industry actually work and getting on with the job instead of having to, you know, spend um, uh, half of your day doing admin and paperwork uh, on the regulatory side. But I think generally, um, I mean, we, we see no cause for concern because the FCA really understands uh, the benefits of these sectors. And uh, last year was really a test for the for the sector. And I think it came out of uh, the, the crisis uh, very well positioned, very well placed. And this is a great thing. Awesome. Um, one last question. What's your strategy for scale? Um, and do you think this will affect your quality of due diligence? I mean, for us, it's always been very, very clear that quality comes above quantity. And we've, we've lent so far close to 30 million. And I would say if there is one complaint that we receive from our lenders is the fact that we don't have enough loans. Our loans get funded in, in minutes, like in sometimes in less than one minute. For example, last week, we had a 1.1 million loan, and that was funded in, 
less than one minute. So we prefer to have uh, uh, less loans, but good quality, rather than have more loans, but uh, lose on the quality. And this is something that we've always said. Um, the you know challenge to scaling up uh, for us is definitely on the borrowing side, meaning on having more borrowers rather than on lenders, because money, uh, as I said, you know, the money has doubled. We've, we've, we've got a lot of money on the platform sitting. Um, so for us, the key is to be able to scale on having more borrowers on the platform. And we are doing that by uh, uh, hiring more people on the origination team. We've, we've hired people and we keep hiring people um, who are a, a real estate loan originators. Uh, so they have the right contacts with uh, developers and with brokers and so on. We do a little bit of marketing as well on the borrowing side. We've never done you know, any marketing on the lender side to get money, to get investors. But on the borrowing side and, and uh, partnerships you know, with the councils, with the uh, accountants, uh, architects, anyone who really has access to property developers.